What do you think about when you hear the phrase solar energy? I think it's expensive. It's probably a lot easier to install than what people think, but they don't do it because there's some kind of preconceived idea that it's more expensive. Savings, I guess. I mean, it sounds like people in my office who have solar panels are saving money. I don't spend a lot on electricity, so it isn't a matter of you know what I spend each month, but I do think it's the right thing to do. Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Today we're talking about all things solar with Laura Wisland and John Rogers, two senior energy analysts here at the Union of Concerned Scientists. Hey everyone. Our podcast team recorded this episode right after the solar eclipse. So we had the sun on our minds, and also in our eyes, safely through eclipse glasses, of course. Specifically, we wanted to talk about solar energy and its spread throughout the United States. And we had a lot of questions. What happens to solar power generation when it's cloudy? Why is California so crucial to the spread of solar energy in the US? What is the duck curve and why is it important? What if you wanna take advantage of the financial and environmental benefits of solar but you don't own your home. Luckily, UCS has bi-coastal experts in solar and other clean energy who are eager to answer our questions. And just like the eclipse, we started on the West Coast with Laura Wisland, one of the many folks working in California to resolve the challenges with the growing use of renewable energy, namely what to do when the sun goes down, or do we really need to worry about that anymore? And then we finished on the East Coast with John Rogers, also a senior energy analyst. John spoke with us from his professional and personal experience with the nuts and bolts and the costs and benefits of installing home solar. Here's our correspondent, Louis Castilla, with senior energy analyst, Laura Wisland. Welcome, Laura. It's a pleasure to have you on our show. Thank you. So let's just jump straight in. What is the dot curve and why is it important? Sure. So the duck curve is an affectionate name for a graph that shows how the demand for electricity in California is going to change over time as we bring more and more clean energy onto the system. Um, it's called the duck curve because the line on the graph is in the shape of a duck. And the reason why it's in the shape of the duck is because the line represents the residual amount of electricity demand that is left over when portions of electricity demand are being met by wind and solar. So the graph shows that over the course of the day, as California brings on all of this solar generation, which in turn provides a lot of our electricity needs, the leftover electricity demand we have dips way down, and that's not surprising. And, then it, and so that's the belly of the duck. And then over time, when the sun sets and everybody comes home and turns on their TVs and starts making dinner and uses electricity, because we don't have that solar resource to provide electricity at nighttime, the residual demand goes up, and that's the neck of the duck. So it's a graph that shows us, first of all, how solar is doing its job on the system and providing a lot of electricity needs during the day, but it also points out some of the challenges that we're going to have to figure out so that we can make sure that we have adequate electricity supplies throughout all 24 hours of the day. 
So how did the duck curve become a thing? Yeah, so California has been a leader on renewables for over two decades, and we passed a law in 2011 that requires the utilities to reach 33% of their electricity supplies from renewables by 2020. So it was right after the passage of that law that the grid operators started thinking about, okay, now that we're setting ourselves up to supply a third of our electricity from renewables by 2020, what could the grid look like in 2020 and what sorts of investments and decisions are we going to have to make in order to make sure that we can handle 33% renewables? And so the duck curve came out of discussions about how to implement the 33% RPS. So what's the end game here? What are we trying to achieve? Well, the work that we're doing at UCS is trying to identify pathways forward and solutions for addressing the grid integration challenges that the duck curve illustrates. So there's two big ones. The duck curve tells us that we have this great solar resource coming online in the middle of the day and satisfying a lot of our electricity needs, but unless we bring other investments onto the system, we're going to have this escalating electricity demand in the evening period. That's the neck of the duck. It's called the ramp. And so we need to figure out what to do about that. And there's several different types of strategies we can deploy in order to satisfy that evening ramp. And a lot of the work that we've been doing in our office is trying to figure out how to do that. And particularly, trying to figure out how to satisfy that evening ramp without just simply relying on natural gas plants to do that. We know that gas plants, because they are pretty flexible, if we have them online and ready to go, they could pretty easily just ramp up in the evening and satisfy that evening ramp need. But we also know that gas plants emit air pollution and they also emit global warming pollution. So, you know, obviously UCS is very invested in figuring out how we can meet that evening ramp without using a lot of natural gas. So specifically, some of the things that we've been working on are ways to make additional investments in energy storage so that we can actually take some of that solar that's being generated in the middle of the day and move it into the evening periods to satisfy some of that evening ramp. We're also looking at ways to specifically target additional investments and energy efficiency technologies that will reduce electricity demand in the evening period so that evening ramp is lower to begin with and try to figure out ways to um, provide economic signals to electricity customers and deploy technologies that will help encourage people to use more electricity during the times of the day when we have abundant renewable energy supplies, which over time, because we're bringing on so much solar, is actually going to be in the middle of the day. And those load-shifting strategies are called demand response, where we get a signal either in the form of an electricity rate that says, oh, it'll be a lot cheaper if you actually run your dishwasher in the middle of the day, or you know, run your air conditioning or maybe even plug in your electric vehicle instead of at night when everybody comes home and we have to deal with this evening ramp. All of this sounds complicated. Is it? Uh, yeah, <laughs> it is complicated. A lot of the things that we're working on, you can suggest them conceptually, but then actually doing the analysis to prove to the grid operator that they are as good or even better than a natural gas plant 
at providing safe and reliable electricity service 24 hours a day does require some pretty sophisticated modeling tools in order to be able to make a strong case. And so here at UCS, we've actually hired people that have the ability to manipulate very complicated models of the electricity system. And what we do with them is that we run the scenarios that the grid operator is planning to rely upon to keep the grid reliable over time. And then we start experimenting with different pathways we could take to still satisfy those same grid needs, but do it in a way that has much cleaner resources. For example, with all the solar that we're planning to bring online in in the middle of the day, we actually could have too much of it. So the most important thing that the grid operator does at all times is to keep supply and demand in balance. And in the past, our big reliability worry has been that we're suddenly not going to have enough electricity supply to meet a demand. And that could happen with like a storm coming in and suddenly a power plant goes offline or a transmission line goes down and we don't have enough supply. That's a, that's a big problem for the grid. But in the future, with a lot of solar coming onto the system, we could have times of the day when we have too much supply. And that type of imbalance is just as problematic for a grid operator as too little supply. So one of the things that we've been trying to do at UCS is figure out, is it going to be more cost effective to deploy tools and strategies on the grid to move some of that excess solar to other parts of the day in the evening when we could use that electricity when we do have demand? Or are there other resources that are online and generating on the system that are actually crowding out that solar in the middle of the day and causing us to have to waste it? And that's what we've been looking into. And what we've realized in California is that there actually are resources we have on the system generating in the middle of the day that are emitting carbon that are contributing to sometimes waste the solar generation we have in the middle of the day. And and for us, that's a problem. We think that's a really big missed opportunity. We don't want to be put in a situation in this state where we make a huge, you know, we make all this investment in clean energy resources, but because we're also running natural gas online in the, in the middle of the day as well, we have to waste the solar because we have too much supply. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You mentioned storing solar energy in the middle of the day so it can be used when the sun goes down. What sort of storage are you talking about? Yes, there's several different forms of energy storage. There's batteries. um, There's also pumped hydropower, which is a, a form of energy storage in big reservoirs. And the idea there is that when electricity is really cheap and abundant, you use pumps to pump water uphill into an upstream reservoir and then just store it there. And then when you need to generate electricity at a later time, you just release the water and then electricity is generated by the force of gravity. So that's another form of storage. Molten salt energy storage is basically you you capture the heat of the sun and you store that heat in salts. And then when you're ready to use it later, you use that heat to make steam and turn a turbine and generate electricity that way. There's a lot of different types of energy storage. I think the ones that people are talking about most these days are batteries because we're thinking about batteries for large-scale energy storage on the grid. We're also thinking about batteries for smaller amounts of storage for our cars, for electric vehicles. 
What are some of the things about all this that you're most excited about? So part of our research focused on how can we turn down the natural gas in the middle of the day? And we first had to ask the question, why is that gas generating in the middle of the day? If we have all this additional solar, we don't really need that gas to satisfy our electricity demand. So why are we running those plants and why is that gas on the system? And the answer to that is because we need that gas online for reliability services. So in addition to having generation online to meet our electricity demand, we need to have additional sources of generation or other ways to make the grid flexible so that if there's a sudden increase or decrease in supply or demand, we can respond very quickly to restore that balance of supply and demand. And right now, grid operators typically use gas plants that are just like on, you know, behind the scenes, waiting in the wings, ready to go in case supply dips suddenly or demand jumps suddenly. So we asked the question, well, gas is flexible, but renewables are pretty flexible as well. And what if we ran the solar plants a little bit differently? So instead of just running them flat out and having them generate constantly as much power as they could at any one second, what if they held back their generation a little bit and created some headroom, and then that headroom provided them the flexibility to ramp up and ramp down, just like a gas plant does. And so part of our research basically mimicked the ability of solar plants to provide that type of flexibility in the system. And what we found is that if you operated in that way, it provides significant grid services and you can rely less on natural gas to do that job. And so when we showed our findings to the grid operator, they were excited about it, but, you know, they wanted to do the research for themselves. They wanted to be able to make sure that they fully trusted the results. And one of the things I'm most excited about is that about six months ago, we heard that the grid operator was doing a pilot study with a large-scale solar plant to do this very thing, to actually test the ability of a large-scale solar plant to operate much more flexibly and basically mimic the grid reliability services that a gas plant provided. And the results of that study were released to the public, and it was amazing. From their results, they showed that a large-scale solar plant was able to more accurately follow the signal from a grid operator than a gas plant or a hydropower plant, which are currently the two resources the grid operator relies upon to provide grid services and reliability needs. So we think that's going to be a game changer. We're hoping that this not only provides grid operators across the country with a whole new set of tools on grid reliability that are not fossil fuel based, and we also hope it sends a strong message to the solar industry that if operated differently than they do today, solar power can not only provide clean electricity for people, but can also provide grid reliability services without the added cost of greenhouse gas emissions or air pollution. So I'll just go ahead and ask, why is all of this important? So we know the electricity sector needs to get a lot cleaner because the generation of electricity is one of the largest, if not the largest, source of carbon emissions in the United States. 
The other big reason why we think we need to bring more clean energy resources onto the electricity sector is because if we transition cars and trucks from using gasoline and diesel to using electricity, clean electricity could not only reduce emissions within the electricity sector, but also take a big crack at reducing emissions associated with the transportation sector in our country, which is a big deal. Thank you, Laura. Do you have any final thoughts? Well, I think that we're figuring out how to deploy renewables in a much more sophisticated way so that they're not only providing us with clean electricity, but they're also good citizens of the grid and they're providing grid reliability services. And I think that UCS really sees that as the future of renewables. We know that if we're going to get to 50, 75, 100% of our electricity coming from renewables, they're going to have to pull their weight on the reliability side as well. And we're really excited about the research we're doing in that respect and think it has pretty exciting implications for the deployment of renewables across the world. Up next, residential solar. As we see more and more houses dotted with solar panels, many of us, including me, want to know how to get in on the action. We'll be back with senior energy analyst John Rogers to tell us how. You're listening to the Got Science podcast, brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. More at ucsusa.org slash podcast. If you like what you hear, leave a review on iTunes, email us at podcast.ucsusa.org, and please share us with your friends and colleagues. And now, my conversation with John Rogers. Hello. Hey, John. It's Colleen. Hey, Colleen. Hey, welcome back to the Got Science podcast. We're talking all things solar energy today. And one question we get a lot is about residential solar. So I thought we could give our listeners the lay of the land. Is solar available to everyone? And what are the options? So let's start with the simplest case. Let's imagine that you own a house and you've got a roof and your roof gets lots of sunshine and you want to go solar. So when you go out to look for solar panels, you have essentially you have a, a couple different options. It's sort of like buying a car. You can buy them or you can lease them. So if you want to buy them, you get the solar panels put on your house, you pay for them, you know, either with cash or you go out and take a loan or whatever. But basically, those panels are yours and you get the power from them and, and everything's set. If you don't want to own them, and there are reasons why this might be a good way to go, you can find companies out there in a lot of places that will lease a system to you. So they put the panels on your roof, they own them, and then over time, you know, you pay for those things, and maybe after 15 or 20 years, you buy them for some nominal price. Or you can enter into some sort of arrangement where you basically are buying the power from them. So you pay for every kilowatt hour that the panels actually produce. So again, there are advantages and disadvantages to each of those models, depending on how, what kind of cash, what kind of money you have available or have access to, or how much you want to be responsible for them, how much you want another company to take care of them. And different things work for different people. So what if you don't have a house, but you still want your energy to come from solar? That's certainly the case for 
for a lot of us. So let's imagine that you think about people who have houses, but have roofs that face the wrong direction or have a lot of shading, or they live in a condo, so it's a multifamily situation, or they rent. So obviously there are a lot of us who are in those circumstances. So fortunately there is something called shared solar or community solar, and this is really neat. So imagine a company putting up a a bunch of panels, more than you would have on your roof, maybe many times more than you would have on your roof. And they put them in a, let's say in a field or on some other rooftop, some big rooftop somewhere, and they face them toward the sun and they orient them just right and they maintain them. And what you do is you buy a piece of that action. So you either buy the output from a certain number of panels, you know, the electricity from a certain number of those panels, or you say, give me 400 or 800 kilowatt hours a month. And you basically sign a deal that says, you give me that power for the next 15 or 20 years and I will pay you X. And, you know, it might be a fixed amount over that term. It might go up a little each year, just like your electricity bill does. Uh, But basically, it can be almost exactly like having solar panels on your own roof, except, again, somebody else is taking care of them. Somebody else is making sure that they're producing as much solar as they can. So that's pretty cool. That means that a lot more people have access to, to solar, which is great. Yeah, that's right. Now, on the flip side, if you're renting, you might not be in a position to enter into a 15 or 20 year agreement. You know, right. some of us rent to different parts of our lives because we're, we're not looking for the long term commitment that buying a house involves. And it could be the same thing with entering into a solar agreement. Right. So what about from state to state? Is purchasing solar different from state to state? It sure is. So there are different laws that make it easier or harder for residents, renters, homeowners to go solar. So I said that, for example, the shared solar can be like having solar on your own roof. That varies a lot. So some states make that a lot easier. Some states let you treat an electron, a kilowatt hour that comes out of a shared solar system as just the same as if it were a kilowatt hour coming off of your roof. And so you can just offset. So if you if you buy 100 kilowatt hours of solar from a community system, then you just take 100 kilowatt hours off your bill. Uh, but not all states do that. And not all states have the sort of policy environment that allows community solar, shared solar to happen. So same thing with rooftop solar. Some of the states, you know, it, it really depends how they're treating the kilowatt hours that you're generating. And that's that's going to vary even within a state that can vary in terms of how that gets treated, who gets what benefits from that kilowatt hour. So is there a place, can you find information about that on a .gov site in your state? Is it readily available? So there is a, there's a terrific website called Desire, D-S-I-R-E, which is the, sort of broadly about state renewable energy incentives. And, and you can put in your state and see what's going on. There are other sites out there, I think, that specifically if you're thinking about rooftop solar that might serve you. What I would do is just, you know, Google solar in and then the name of your state and, right. and see what pops up. There are lots of groups out there that are pushing for solar rights to make sure that that homeowners get to benefit from this. And, you know, the interesting thing is this isn't environmentalists necessarily pushing for this. This is people across the political spectrum that just get that we should have the right to make our own power if if that's what we want to do. Let me cut to what I think is usually the most important factor when people are thinking about where they get their energy. Does solar make sense cost-wise? 
So the short answer is yes, probably. So let's talk about this. Let's let's ignore for a moment the externalities. You know, let's not think about the costs of pollution, the public health, anything associated with our electricity choices. If you want to look at solar panels as a means of getting the kilowatt hours you need or a portion of them, the economics of that is going to vary depending on the cost of getting a solar system where you live. Again, whether you're buying it or leasing it or, or buying into shared solar. But the, the cost of the equipment, it's going to depend on how much sun you get, though that actually varies a lot less than people might think from, you know, if you look from the southwest to the northeast where I live, there's actually not as much variation as you might think. So that's the second factor. And the third factor would be how much you pay for electricity. So even in places that might not have as much sun, if the electricity is more expensive, then that's going to make the economics look a lot better. So there are a lot of places, a lot of states now actually around the U.S. where they're at the geeky term for this is grid parity, meaning what your solar panels have to compete with is not what a big power plant can generate electricity for. It's how much you as a homeowner or a bill payer are paying. So it's not the three or four or five cents a kilowatt hour. It's the 10 cents or the 15 or the 20 cents a kilowatt hour that you pay in your home. So that's the price to beat. And solar is cheaper than that in a whole lot of places and a whole lot more places than it was just two or three years ago. And that has to do with, you know, largely with the falling costs of solar. So I've, um, I don't I don't think I mentioned this when we first got on the phone, but I've recently been looking into getting solar and it is somewhat complicated. Um, I was going to ask what the, the first step is for someone. And I think you kind of said it already, which is to Google solar in your state and start there to see what's going on. But I also have in my community sort of a solar advocate where the town is hoping to get more solar. So they have people who are there to advise you and help you get an estimate and understand it. So I know that's happening in my community. I imagine it maybe is happening in a lot of other places, which is super helpful. Yeah, that's right. So that's probably the easiest way to do it. If you see that your town is launching some sort of a group initiative, so a a popular one is called Solarize. So your town might be solarizing. What that means is that they've done the heavy work. They've gone out and found a preferred supplier, picked somebody who wants to work with the town, some company, and they've negotiated prices. and, And often these are prices that will come down even further based on how many people sign up. And so it might be 10, 20, 50, 100 people or more from your town or city. And you can get some some incredible prices. And again, they've taken a lot of the heavy lifting out of this by finding the supplier, by having the town ready, you know, in terms of the permitting and all that. That's probably the easiest way to do it. But it doesn't have to be complicated. So There are websites that are aggregators, so you can go on to a website and basically tell them your situation, and then they'll go out and get a bunch of bids for you. Or you can sort of look around and find out who's active in your area, your your town or neighboring towns. Look for signs, look for trucks. That'll give you a sense for what's out there. And actually, you know, the best way might be word of mouth. This is what I did. I found friends or neighbors who had gone solar, and I said, who'd you go with? And so I got personal recommendations that way. And that gave me, a, I think, a greater measure of confidence about who I was potentially signing up with. Well, that's great. I have a final question for you. This I had to ask this because we still hear this a lot. 
what happens in the winter? What happens on a cloudy day if I get solar installed in my house? Uh, you're going to have a you're going to have a great day. Uh, the, the lights <laughs> the lights will turn on. The fridge will work. Your your DVR will still record your favorite programs. Nothing will change. The solar is there to generate electricity so that over the course of the month, the course of the year, it could be producing you know fifty, eighty, even one hundred percent of your electricity supply on average. And so what that means is when you're producing solar, and let's say you're not home, you're at work, you're at school, it's feeding that electricity into the grid. And then when you come home at night and flick on your switch, you're pulling electricity back out of the grid. And so it's the same for a cloudy day. It's the same in the middle of winter. Your solar will produce what it can, but then you will always have access to what you want from the electricity grid. So don't worry about that unless you're thinking of severing your connection to the electricity grid completely. If you're cutting off from your local utility and that's not what most people are doing. So, you know, that would require putting batteries, you know, having energy storage. So you're generating and then you're producing. That's, you know, that's probably easier to do in some climates than others. If you do have snowy winters and, you know, long, dark periods, (laughs) that gets a little tougher. You need a whole lot of batteries or anyway, that's not the way most people are doing it. Most people are staying you still got your utility power. Your utility is still supplying you with electricity when you need it. From the utility's perspective, the idea can be that solar is going to be producing power at a time when they need it. You know, if you think, when are those air conditioning units running? Uh, that's in the middle of a really sunny day, a sunny, hot day. But if it's sunny, that means your solar panels are producing. So it can be a win-win for you and your utility. Well, that's great, John. Thanks for coming back to enlighten us on residential solar. Uh, Happy to do it, Colleen. Thank you. Great. See ya. I want to make one small correction to our interview. John mentioned a website where you can find info about renewable incentives. That URL is dsireusa.org. Well, that's it for this episode of Got Science. If you'd like more information about energy, renewable technologies, our reports on everything from grid reliability to state rankings on clean energy, go to ucsusa.org energy. Special thanks to our bookend senior energy analysts, Laura Wisland out in Oakland and John Rogers here in Cambridge. And thanks to our correspondent, Louis Castilla. Engineering and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. If you'd like to hear more episodes of Got Science, go to ucsusa.org podcast. Even easier, pick us up on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. And please, share us far and wide. Thanks, and see you next time.